Hi, Suzanne, and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're able to get here. <laughs> I'm a little concerned because I'm on my phone. Um, I was hoping to be on my laptop, but that didn't work. So I just want to say that my phone doesn't work very well in my house. So hopefully um, we won't be cut off. Uh, okay. So anyway just wanted to say that first so it's not because i hung up on you it's because i you know i don't have a great phone connection but it may work because i'm on it um on wi-fi so okay no that that's great to know so i'll know you know should we drop off that's okay so let's move on then let's go ahead and go in it okay. so welcome again so good to see you thank God. you great to see you thank you thank you so what brings us together is writing we are a community of writers who are united by our passion for writing and the common challenge, word improv. What is word improv? A writing challenge, where writers write a story using a provided set of words. What's the purpose of this interview? <clears throat> the interview is part of a passive baton series where contributors to the word improv challenge interview one another so that community and audiences could see and learn about word improv as well as us about what we do and how we write in our works. So with that said, I'd like to introduce Susan Moyers, a former teacher, was an educator and writer for over 20 years. Um, she's a self-proclaimed lifelong history geek. And from what I heard, it's, it's true guys, you don't wanna hear her. Suzanne spends <laughs> most of her free time as a volunteer archeologist, mud larker. She gonna tell us what that one is. <laughs> and metal detectors. Suzanne is the proud mom of two amazing young adults, Sarah and Jassy, and resides in the greater New York area, our city, New York City area, with her husband, Edward, and her spoiled fur baby, Tuxie. So, <laughs> first, I'd like to ask if you would mind reading what you wrote to the Word Improv Challenge. Heck yeah, I've been practicing it all day. <laughs> Absolutely, let's have it. <laughs> okay, all right, so here goes. I'm actually looking at it on my laptop, so forgive me if I'm not looking directly at you, but I, I kind of need to do it. It's a little long, um, but not too long. Okay, so it is called Never Cross a Post-Pandemic Mom. And I just want to say before I read, full disclosure, uh, I uh, this is not based on too much on my real life. So any people represented in it are fictional. <laughs> um, so anyway, here I go. The introverted side of my ambivert self found plenty of positives in early COVID lockdown. It was refreshing not to make awkward small talk at cocktail parties or anywhere for that matter. To spend all day in yoga pants and t-shirts sans bra to grow hairy and dull skinned because really, what choice did I have? By the time I emerged from isolation, mustachioed and unable to walk in real shoes, my extroverted side was desperate to hit the bars and tapas joints of Hell's Kitchen hard. Luckily, I found a compatriot in my best chum, Nikki. Though not a fan of Spanish food, Nikki was equally weary of staring at the same faces over dinner sick of inhaling fire pit fumes, tired of online meetups, tired even of yoga pants. So one Saturday night during hot back summer, we hit Gotham together, marveling at the noise and bodies and abundance of on-street parking area spaces. We'd just begun having fun when, somewhere between two pictures of Sangria and 43rd Street, a leering toady 
named Kyle attached himself to us like barnacles to a boat. Kyle, whose breath smelled like a blooming onion, was clearly not cismontane, yammering endlessly about the gourmet buffet at TGI Friday in Times Square and how everyone back home had warned him of the riots in New York City. Apparently, he'd been in lockdown since 1952 because when he grabbed Nikki's derriere, he sure wasn't prepared for what happened next. Keep in mind, we'd been vaxxed, masked, and sassed within an inch of our lives. Two women who'd survived not only a pandemic, but four years of a chuckle-headed sexist president. Also, Nikki taught Chai Chi, and I was wearing steel-toed Timberlands. Needless to say, the imbroglio that followed took old Kyle by surprise. Last we saw Mr. Hansi Halitosis, he was flying down 8th Avenue toward the bus station, no doubt heading back to whatever is the opposite of Cis-Montaigne. The end. Okay, with that said, that's really beautiful. I actually read that last night and this morning again. Can you tell them what the words were that you had to use? Oh, yes, yes, I should have done that before. I tried to like shout them when I was saying um, ambivert. Should I define that? Should I define it? Oh, no, that's okay. We just want to <laughs> they can look it up. I do that too. <laughs> Chum, which as my husband pointed out, could be used in a couple of different ways. I used it as friend. Uh, toady. Cismontane was the hardest one. And imbroglio. Oh, mustachioed as well. Yes. Okay, that's great. That was really great. Well put together. Great use of the word. <laughs> and I loved it. It was um, fun. Awesome. Awesome. So let me just ask, um, you have a new novel, Till All These Things Be Done. Till All These Things Be Done. Where did you get the idea for your novel? And how did you come up with the title? Okay, well, the idea. I came up with the idea about 40 years ago, <laughs> actually. Um, wow. I was a teenager when my grandmother moved from her Texas farm into our home on Long Island, New York. Um, and, you know, I was a pretty typical teenager, pretty self-involved and, you know, with busy with my friends and boyfriends and music. And, um, but I'll never forget the day I saw her like holding her arms out to a corner and crying, Papa, come back, please. Um, it just stopped me dread in my, dead in my tracks. I'd never heard of her father. I knew she'd had a difficult youth. Um, I'd never heard of him before. She'd never mentioned him. I'd always sensed something about her that was kind of closed off, but I never knew the story. So after that happened, I started asking my mother questions about this Papa. And I found out that he had left them when she was a young teenager. Uh, actually, I think she was only 12. The character in my book is older, but um, leaving them in dire circumstances. And, you know, she found out later about this terrible betrayal, which I won't get into because it's a little bit, uh, it's, I've loosely based the, the book on this, so I don't want to give away too much. But, but there was more to the story. And there was this weird thing that happened about the time my grandmother began seeing the ghost of her father. Mm -hmm. It was a really weird twist of fate. And we never quite understood what it meant, but it came to inspire the re resolution of the novel, um, which my grandmother never had. 
but I imagined, but I like to believe could be true. Mm -hmm. So that's where I got the idea. I didn't start writing until about 12 years ago. And this is oh. the story I wanted to tell, so. So your novel takes place during the great influenza pandemic that started yes. in 1918. How did your own experience under COVID's lockdown color how you wrote the scenes in your novel? Very interesting. I actually wrote those scenes. That was the one thing my grandmother did talk about from her childhood. Um, she and my great grandmother, who is mama in the book, um, they both caught what they called the boomerang influenza in 1919. The, the great influenza actually, which some people call the Spanish influenza, but we don't really call it that. It lasted for a good five years, you know, it just we, like just like this pandemic, it kind of like got weaker and weaker, but it was still around. And um, anyway, her mother and herself and she caught the the influenza. Um, and so I wrote those scenes like from my research and my imagination and the little bit she had told me about it before. And mm -hmm. oh, wow. So Really weird. So when I, of course, I've constantly been revising this, even after I, I signed a publishing contract, I was editing and revising it. And at one point I was, when I went back, I actually went back to that scene, which is fairly early in the book and looked at it. Uh -huh. And it was, it, it was during the pandemic and it was so weird wow. to read it. And I did change some things because I had this emotional understanding you know, of, of what it was. And actually later on, when I was making final corrections to my book, I got COVID. Even though oh. I was everything, I got sick. And it was really strange reading those scenes, like, you know, hacking and sick, even though it's a different disease. But right. yeah, so it was a weird, it was a surreal experience. Were you still writing at the time that you had COVID? Well, as I said, like I've been working on this book for 10 years now, and I was making corrections, my final corrections for the book before it went to print. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so I changed a few little things even then when I was sick. It just helped me sort of understand what they had been through. Uh -huh, uh -huh. That's beautiful. Beautiful. What's the most interesting thing you learned about this historical period in which a novel takes place? Wow. Well, gosh, it's hard to pick one thing, but uh, so this novel takes place 100 years ago in rural Texas, East Texas, which they call Blacklands. They used to call it Blacklands, Texas, because it was very, the soil was like black and it was very good for growing cotton. Um, and that was a huge crop a year ago. And so it had a very interesting um history there were people think of texas as being sort of very homogenous it really wasn't it was a very diverse society there were you know uh the white sort of settlers who had come there via ireland england and appalachia as my parent my great my kin had done there were african americans who were descendants of enslaved people there were native americans um there were you know, Spanish Americans, Mexican Americans, Tejano. There was a great culture, but of course it was a really segregated society. And it was during the era, era of early Jim Crow. And I knew that, but it wasn't until I did my research um, 
especially this incredible book called The Second Coming of the KKK by Linda, I think, Thompson. It was, you know, about how during this period, because Black folks had started to fight back against this incredible oppression they lived under for 300 years. And white people were, you know, they didn't want that. And so they started to, to like act with greater, you know, ferocity than ever, many of them. And it was a terror, it was an era of, of white supremacy. And even though I was writing through the eyes of a white character, um, it was a huge part of the setting of this novel. And I didn't want to pretend it wasn't. Um, I have my character, um, again, who's white. I didn't, you know, she's watching this as a young adult and she's beginning to notice what is like, what have I been taught here? And she's really starting to question, you know, she's raised in this Protestant do unto others culture, but here are people on a daily basis treating others with absolute degradation, not to mention violence at this time. Um, and I have to imagine that some white adolescents, you know, and, and young people saw this and were really conflicted. Like, you know, here we are being taught to love everybody, but what, what is this? So, you know, she doesn't, she's not a white savior by any stretch. She would not have been, but she is deeply informed, but she's deeply conflicted and it, and it sort of shapes her character in a way um, as she gets older um, and she has to sort of like find her voice of, of dissent over what she sees. And it's not easy. Um, so that was something I was just shocked. I mean, it was just, white supremacy was just everywhere. And I think not all Texans, de definitely not all Texans were like that. You know, there was the Citizens League of Dallas, which organized against the KKK. Um, and there were maybe 5,000 people in that group. There was the NA NACP. There were black activists really fighting against. People don't realize that, that this was in the 1910s and 20s. And black folks were really, um, standing up it was they were the first civil rights they set the the um the course of the modern civil rights movement and a lot of people don't know about that mm. um and so i have a character in my book who's a, who's a childhood friend of leola's who is has returned from world war one as many black people served in world war one and then they come home they, they couldn't get benefits they couldn't uh, get a pension they were not allowed to wear their uniforms in public, which most veterans did. Um, and he, it, it radicalized him. So she's watching this black friend of hers becoming radicalized and like not wanting to put up with it anymore. So, and that was true. That really did happen. And it was, it was fascinating. It was something I didn't know about. That sounds so beautiful and educational too. I mean, I really, it sounds like that's something that should actually be in our schools, man. Kids need to learn, you know, you know, I think it's really going to help them understand a lot of the race relations, you know, that they don't understand, we don't talk about. I think, I think, you know, and that's what this critical race theory is about. It's, mm. you know, it's about teaching what was real. And when I was writing the first version of my book, of course, I mentioned, you know, racism. I mean, it was just there. But when I rewrote the book. I really, it was, became a, I would say like a, 
like a character in my book almost, you know, the fact of Jim Crow, the fact of, which is a name I hate because it's based on a degrading racial stereotype. I don't think people realize that, but this whole white supremacy thing, um, it, it, it's, it, they were, every, they, everyone was marinated in it. It was just there. Um, you couldn't go to the store basically without, you know, you know, black people are expected to step off the sidewalk for you. Um, you know, I mean, that is so toxic and, you know, it's important to understand that, that that's where we come from. It's hard to teach it too. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to understand it. And it's also hard to teach it, I believe. It is hard. And, you know, it was interesting when I was, um, had signed a publishing contract and, um, you know, people were asking me, to be honest with you, if, you know, I thought I needed to get into all that because it really isn't what the story's about. It's not. It's about this young woman's journey, personal journey to figuring out what happens to her father and what happens to her as a result of his disappearance. If that's what the story's about. But the setting is so important. And, you know, some people tried to kind of talk me out of having these difficult scenes um, where, you know, Leol is actually trying to voice her, her conflict and where, you know, she's seeing black people being accosted and degraded. But that's the way it was, you know? That's the way it was. That's how horrible it's a truth. It's a truth. So it is hard to, I think it's also hard to teach it, but I think it's, I mean, we have the documents, we have the research, we have the data. This was real. And also I think it's important to remember that A, there were black, white, and everything in between people who tried to fight it in Texas and ever, I mean, white supremacy was a huge um, ideology, not just in the South. I mean, I live in Northern New Jersey and the KKK that marched down the street of the town next to me in 1920 or something. The biggest race riots in 19, in the early 1900s were in Chicago, you know? So, so I'm not meaning to say, oh, Texans are not at all. In fact, just the opposite. It's, you know, when you're a kid growing up in that environment, when you're a white kid, you are, you are, you know, you're expected to toe the line, you know, you're a child. And so anyway, so yeah, it's hard to teach it, but I think it's utterly important. Definitely important, definitely important. Suzanne, I know we're gonna be running out of time shortly. I wanted to ask Bianca, if you have any questions, <laughs> excuse me, that you'd like to ask Suzanne? Actually, I do have one. I'm listening to this and I'm kind of hearing um, echoes of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, uh, which also follows a young, young girl who's white and sees, has, you know, sees what's going on. She does have her father as, as a guide because he's a civil rights lawyer, but um, it, it seems like it, it's trying to address some of those things. And, and we were talking about education and To Kill a Mockingbird is one of those those um, novels that come up as on the curriculum all the time. 
Um, but maybe it, there is a there is something to be said for something as for 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 a document that's more recently written. Um, I'm I'm just thinking of my what my son he he just finished high school and his last the last book that they actually read was always running by um, um, it, uh, Rodriguez I think it's Rodriguez um, anyway it's it's from the point of view of a of of a uh, Mexican his parents are Mexican he is born in He's actually, I'm not sure, I can't remember whether he's born in Mexico or, or was brought when he was really little. Um, it, he, but he's a gang member in LA hmm. in, the, in the, I think, 60s. Um, and it's, it's, it, it goes from, from East, uh, from, from, um, from um, but just where they, where they just built the Sixth Street Bridge. Uh, some of some of the action happens in that in, uh, in on those railroad tracks. They the, the kids um, cross the railroad tracks, um, not using the bridge because the bridge there there was a different bridge at the time. Anyways, um, I I really feel that my son got a much much better understanding of where he lives. We live in LA from this book that was written from the, from, by a gang member. Just actually, in actual fact, it seems like he's saving his life by writing this book. Um, and it's, it's, it has the most amazing lyrical language you've ever heard coming from, the, from this, this place where there's nothing but desolation and addiction mm. and, and but that's those are the kind of things that make young people sit up and actually listen. So yeah. I've, I really commend you for putting those scenes in because they are the scenes that will make people listen. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because, um, you know, this isn't a YA novel. It started out as a YA, but because I'm dealing with some very deep, I'm not saying that, I mean, I think young adults will love it, but because it, it's, there was a fine line between the YA and the new adult and the adult fiction. And I felt like I had more leeway writing for an adult audience and discussing some of these issues. So it's interesting that you say that because again, the book isn't really about that. It's just part of its setting. And I think the story I hope is compelling in itself. Um, but I think a lot of adults need to know this stuff. I mean, I didn't know it. And I think it's, a, you know, especially right now um, in seeing how people are taught these things and and how it becomes part of the culture, um, it, 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 it helps us understand people who, who, I'm sorry, but who have these racist views, like they were taught somewhere along the line. It's and taught, it helps us both be forgiving of them in a way and un by understanding them. And I, I think that's the beginning of opening a dialogue so that people can figure out why they feel and think the way they do. Um, so I, I agree, like I sometimes wonder if I should have made this YA because I think it would be a kind of a learning experience, but mostly it's meant for entertainment. And I hope that adults are surprised by what they learned and affected by it. Oh, I, um, I don't think um, Always Running is YA by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> there is 
there's violence in it. It's, I would not. Yeah, yeah, there is violence. There is. Um, right. Yeah. But yeah. I, 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 that's exactly what I was, the, the understanding of, you know, this, this guy is a gang member. He's got tattoos all over his face, hmm. but he's a human being. That's it right. doesn't matter what he looks like. He's that's a human being who is creating something with his language that actually has beauty. Right. You know? That there, that's that's you know, that's kind of what I'm getting at. You know that we we all need to understand that we're all human. There is, and we all have this this gift of language, and we all yeah. with this with this language we can, can we actually create our world. Right. So, and the first thing to do with this world is to is to acknowledge what came before. That's why history is so important. Yeah. So absolutely. <laughs> I so, don't have to rush off, by the way. I know I had said 30 minutes, but I have a little more time. So please don't feel rushed. If Oh, great. Okay. I'm enjoying myself. I love, you know, I'm a solitary writer. And so it's so nice to be able to talk with, with other people. So I'm kidding. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I only had a few questions because I was on the time uh, thing. It's okay. It's okay. But I just didn't want you to feel stressed about it. So, I mean, we can sign up. <laughs> but it's been a really, um, it's been a really, interesting experience writing this book and um my kids just moved out you know they're young adults now and i'm launching this thing two weeks after my 60th birthday um happy belated thanks happy. it feels like uh it feels like feels like a very um symbolic moment i'm sure i'll, I'll be there next year <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not far off. <laughs> 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 but well, it's kind of ask oh, go ahead. But it seems like that's um so writing is kind of your second career, Suzanne? Uh I think it's like my fourth career. <laughs> I have been a lot of I have done a lot. I started out as a teacher. I miss teaching a lot. Um I was a third grade teacher, second grade teacher, middle school teacher, and a college professor. So I've had a lot of different experience with that and then i was an editor and writer for the education press which i absolutely loved um particularly the work i did for scholastic which i'm sure you've heard of um and then i you know i, I really took time time away i guess you could call it taking care of my kids which was really twofold you gotta do that. <laughs> <laughs> but i always had freelance work and i and i i just needed that but uh yeah, so it's probably my third, fourth career. <laughs> it is. Let me ask you, do you what advice would you give to someone considering publishing or writing, young writers, you know, anybody really just think about doing it? What good advice could you give someone? Oh gosh. You know, actually I've had friends recently who've asked me, I didn't even know they were interested in writing. And they actually said like I have this thing I want to, I'm, I'm interested in, it might be nonfiction or fiction. What, I have no idea how to start. And I had, I was the same, it took me until I was in my mid to late forties before. I was always telling stories in my head as a kid. And I thought that was normal. I thought that was, everybody did that. Um, and I never took myself seriously. Like I can't be a writer. I can't be a writer. And so it was really hard. And I think the most important advice I could give is just to start. Write your crappy first draft. Don't think, 
Don't think. Write down, write down, write down. Edit, go back and edit, edit. You may delete 90% of what you wrote, but I guarantee that everything you've written, no matter how crappy it is, will have made you a better writer because now you're focused on what you need to say. You can't, you, I think some great writers, several writers have said you can't um, edit nothing. You have to have some place to start. So I tell people, don't think about it. Don't, don't watch yourself, just do it. And I, this, the part of that is also finding a writing community. That was crucial for me. And I have an amazing writing community. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be really hard to do it without having, taking a class, meeting people, doing a critique group. It kind of like writing itself, it kind of, um, adds on to itself, it kind of snowballs and it becomes more rewarding and you have more support and structure for your writing, so. Yeah, I, I find that um, um, meeting other writers is important because you realize that they are not very, they're not much different from you are. Totally. So, um, my biggest, um, I, it, I didn't start writing. Well, I wrote, I wrote um, my college, uh, I went to film school and I wrote my college films, mm. but uh, I, I never thought of myself as a writer until, until my, yeah, 40s, um, mm. because I'm dyslexic and how can a dyslexic person be a writer? You know, turns out a lot of dyslexic people are writers. <laughs> really? <laughs> because um, we, we think differently. It makes for really great writing. <laughs> I totally see that. That's so interesting. Wow. <laughs> but you have to get over that hurdle of, of, you know, a lifetime of being told, well, what, what are you trying to do here? Because I can't read write it. Totally. What are you saying? Because that's, that's not the right word. Hey, uh, doesn't Fantasia have, didn't Fantasia have that problem and she's making all this beautiful music and stuff? She couldn't read. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Asia. She's a um, singer, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that she had a problem with being dyslexic, too. She couldn't read. She could sing her ass off. Ooh, that <laughs> pipes on her. <laughs> really? I mean, right. That's, that's the thing. I mean, I, had, I, um, I went to school like every other child in, in Germany, but um, I went to school six, seven, eight. I didn't, I didn't learn how to read. I didn't learn how to write. I, my... But I learned, I, I always knew how to write a story. I used to have a teacher, <laughs> they had a game going. They didn't want to keep me in school because I was obviously bright, but I just couldn't, I couldn't keep numbers straight and I couldn't keep letters straight. Mm -hmm. So they would give me, they would give me the worst possible grade for spelling and, the, and she would give me the best possible grade for, for actual composition because the Right. <laughs> the writing was, was there, but you know, it colors your thinking about yourself Absolutely. when you, when you have something like that and, and it doesn't have to be dyslexia. It can be anything. It can be, um, you having written something in school and I'm, I'm not a poet because I had a poetry teacher in college and he, he absolutely trashed my poetry. <laughs> and it's, I was writing songs for a punk band, so who knows? Wow. <laughs> wow. Not that they were any good, but hey. <laughs> um, but he, he, he could not see what I was doing. He just didn't understand it. It didn't fit into his 
his world of pandemic pentameters and god knows what so um it is important to understand that what you do has value no matter whether the world thinks it does absolutely absolutely exactly i agree and it's it's also important to find people who tell you that what you do has value (laughs) so i would say that because i i didn't think i had much value and i was very insecure i I hated being, I still hate being criticized. I mean, I don't hate it, but, but I have to tell you that critique groups where, you know, you're sharing your work with a bunch of people, hopefully they are like-minded people and they're supportive <laughs> and they're leader because you don't want to just be piled on. There's a way to do it. But what I've learned is that criticism is really important and that it's meant as a tool for me. It's not about me. It's about you know, making about my, my story and about how to make it better. And, mm-hmm. and it's hard to accept that instead of defending, being defensive, like, oh, well, no, that's not what I meant, blah, blah, blah. But I think uh, every time, uh, like 99% of the critiques I've gotten have been spot on. And I have learned from them. That doesn't mean I always change things just because someone suggests I do. Right. But I think, and that has been incredibly hard for me. Um, but I also get why it's so important. So it helps me to deal with it. Uh-huh. I, I think it's also freeing to understand that sometimes people may see something in a different way and it may, it may be better in a different way than what, how you did it the first place. Um, it, it's, I think that to me, there's a lot of freedom in, in editing. I've, I've, I really like the process of being able to change my own words. I, I, I know. Wow. I like editing too. Yeah. There, I mean, a lot of, a lot of writers think that, you know, that's, that's not where it's at. For me, editing is where it's at. And I think it, it always has been because in, in, um, in, in film, it's, it's actually visualized, visualized how editing works. You know, first you write a script and then it gets filmed and things change according to whether you can get to a certain location or whether you, what kind of actors you have to, to enact your scenes and what kind of props you can scrounge um, from wherever. And uh, it, it changes what actually, what your story, your story gets changed that way. And then you go into the editing suite and you rearrange the story again because what you find is not necessarily what you think you had but that that kind of visualized editing is um i i really try to do that with my writing as well where i um at first i write down the movie in my head and then i edit the movie in my head i i make sure that all the images are there and what's your writing process? What, how do you like to, how, what do you start with? Well, I do a little planning. I'm not, you know, they talk about pantsers and plotters. Have you got, yeah, I know you probably heard. A pantser is someone who just writes by the seat of their pants. A plotter is somebody who like sets down everything ahead of time, like an outline. I'm kind of both. I like to know like my beginning, middle and end. 
I try to do a pretty good synopsis now. I'm writing a completely different book right now. Um, it's a crime, a modern crime. It's based on a true crime um, about a, it sounds terrible, but about a, um, a suburban, very religious mother who enlists her golden child to kill the rest of the family. Um, so it, it, I know it sounds very violent. It is <laughs> <laughs> and someone said to me, well, that, well, I can tell you've been in a pandemic lately. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> terrible. But anyway, um, so, but the point is that like, after this first book, I I like having the outline and I did this really in-depth outline. Well, let me tell you, I'm in 70 pages into the book and I keep going back to that outline and it's very different from what I planned, but it gives me something to go on. Mm -hmm. So I do like to make things come out of my head, especially for a first draft, but I need to keep in mind I had a great writing teacher. I hope she's watching. Um, I had a great writing teacher who told me with every scene I write, every chapter I write, every scene needs to somehow move the book forward towards its, you know, denouement, its, its, its narrative, up the, up the narrative arc to the climax. And it ha like everything you write, that doesn't mean you can't have rest scenes where you're just establishing characters and relationships, you can, but even those have. So, so I think it helps to have an outline, but um, I almost never end up following it exactly. Sorry, that was a long answer, <laughs> sorry. Oh no, I totally understand. But I, I have an idea in my head. I don't even bother with the outline anymore. I'm like on, on book four. Well, actually, book six, but the first two will never see the light of day. They're, they're <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> um, and and you know, those are the two books I learned how to write. <laughs> but um, um, I'm I'm writing the the fourth book that is part of my series and will get published. And I know where it's supposed to end up. I know what the end what the end result of everything is. I know why things in the first book happened, um, but I do not know how my characters are going to get there because, believe me, they will change it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they just do what they want to do. I mean, I, I start writing and then all of a sudden they, they've left the room and gone somewhere else. <laughs> Totally. They have, they live a life of their own, right? Like they, they take on this life and Linda, how do you do your poetry? And do you like plan it out front or does it just come from your head? It's, it, I, I do a little bit of both. Sometimes I could just, like I, I explained one day I was coming here to sit down to write. I was planning to write, but when I looked out of my window, it was so beautiful outside. I was like, damn. <laughs> I started writing about how beautiful it looked outside instead of writing the poem I was supposed to write. You know, I just talked about how the trees were shaking, the, the limbs on the palm trees were shaking hands, laughing at all the cars driving by. And then I thought, damn, how come I can't be in one of them cars driving by or even be in a palm tree shaking hands or something instead of looking out the damn window at all this beauty, you know? It just came together so beautifully. But then there's things that I write that I want to take my time and bring more beautifulness to it. You know, like I literally need to make sure that everything is in the right place where it opens and then everything in between, which I call what you call that, that in between stuff. I usually call it a centerpiece because anytime you go to someplace elegant to eat, 
the centerpiece is the focal point, right? Everybody's focused on that centerpiece. They want to take it home. Yeah. I have a centerpiece. <laughs> I put centerpieces to my poetry. So I open it up with something that try to make it a visual, a good visual, but the centerpiece is the most important piece for me to my poetry. Mm, and I, that's all I write is poetry. And like I said, I could sit down and hang up this phone right now and write something in five minutes and be done with it. Beautiful. Not cheesy. Forced there, right? It's but in there. It just would be there, you know? And then there's times where I'm like, oh, I can't. I can't think, you know, and focus on it. I Yep. But I like to write every day as much as I can. If I could write something every single day, ooh, I'd be happy. <laughs> you know what I heard? And I forgot who said this. Some really great writer. I'm not great with keep remembering names, sorry. But um, and I, and this is what I. Everybody's different, but someone said to me, if you go and write um a sentence a day, a sentence a day, you will end up in six months with the book um it may be you know you may have to go back and redo it and you will have to and edit it but so i do try to write like it's instead of wanting to write the whole book in one day like i used to i i'm fine writing a, like a like a paragraph it's you know and i'm a workaholic and i'm i'm really driven but it doesn't work in writing like you said linda like you you only have what you have on that day and that's that's enough um and it adds up over time right and you could be writing something in another whole month from now but you something in what you wrote a month ago clicks in with what you're writing totally day totally and it's like you draw drawing back to that that's oh. why i write down those thoughts and things i do that so much i'm like yeah I wrote something about this and I start going back and I'm like, yeah. Go to it's there. It's up there. <laughs> I love to write. I just love to write. If, if if I was if I had an opportunity to be if someone were to sit in front of me today and say, you know what, what is it that you want to do with your life, the rest of your life, if you could, it would be writing. Give me a a, a room with a view, a window where I could just look out and see a hummingbird or something every now and then or whatever hummingbirds um, are in my book hummingbirds are important in my book actually yeah i love, I love to color hummingbirds i love coloring i do the coloring books and birds are among the top things that i love to love to color really they are just well yeah. entire the same things yeah what like from beginning to end i have to create a story when i look at the picture i have to know where i'm going with it I, and bring colors what colors though i told my sisters the same thing create your story first and you'll come up with a beautiful picture at the end of it Absolutely. Yeah, i apply the same thought to when i'm writing to when i color yeah so that's yeah different um different ways of being create do feed into each other mm -hmm. so many i feed them on my balcony <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely, I saw my first one in Texas visiting my grandparents, uh, one set of my grandparents there, and they they do come up in my book um, <laughs> as a symbol, and uh, they are just amazing creatures. Um, so, yeah. That's beautiful. No, I, I do. I like animals, but I mean, I mean, only color them. I don't want them close to me. <laughs> what? <laughs> What'd you say? Oh, you know, I know. I know. They're a little scary. And if you look at them up close, those beaks and those. 
No, they're not. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's not getting to know them. <laughs> ah. no, yeah, I, is... I, I, I nursed a, a, fl a little fledgling, I, you know. <laughs> no, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm actually excited to be here, guys, and to um, connect with you guys as far as our writing and everything. And I like to encourage us to continue to support each other our writing um by forwarding maybe sharing some things with our followers and you know um, that's a good idea yeah it's it's, a, it's new for me guys this is new but I, I love being a part of it the process and the whole interviewing thing is um is new for me i'm not one to be out in the spotlight i'm i, I like to be in my corner in my little cubby hole leave me alone no and <laughs> I do it like I'm like today I'm sort of like I mean I'm a writer let's face it right uh, but yeah. it's like I'm just like oh I, I don't know if I can but every time I connect with people through this book it is such an incredibly rewarding experience and I have to remind myself of that like it's not just me I am promoting my book I do want people to read my book but it really isn't about that mm -hmm. uh, I just I'm happy with you know making writer friends or other friends but um yeah i love that get used to it I, I sometimes sit back and go god i got too many people in my world right now when it was just me like where did all these people come from, <laughs> came from they came from my poetry but where'd they come from <laughs> i know i can't complain <laughs> yeah no, good thing it's a good thing it, it yeah. feels good it feels right honestly and it's the right community to be in uh a, a community of writers whether it's writing stories or poetry whatever you know um yeah we all have that same common interest is to write you know or just word prompts from word sleuths i mean that it's it's a great way to connect with people who who have an interest in in writing and language and mm -hmm. just learning yeah. some new words <laughs> well i am so grateful to vlad I don't know where he got my name or find out about me. I have an idea, but I'm, I think one of my friends uh, is a fan of his. So maybe she said something. No, I never asked him, but I'm so grateful he got in touch with me. At first I was like, okay, you know how you get those, those things from people Man. that like, <laughs> we will, you know, if you give us $2,000 and we will, you know, set up a booth at, at our exhibit for where you're, you know, and it ends up being a scam, but like, so I was a little suspicious, but then immediately I could just tell that he, wherever he is, he's somewhere listening, um, that he is this huge fan of writers. And, yeah. and he's been, I have to say, if I've been anybody who's watching this has ever asked to do this, you should definitely do it. It's been a great experience and that thank you yeah well i'm looking forward to you interviewing the next the next writer yeah thank you please keep in touch and uh will do okay Absolutely. take care thank you thank you thank okay. you so bye. much bye bye bye, bye. bye. Yeah. thank you